The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Alexander Gallas. We spoke about the degree of popular support for the political and economic project of the Thatcher government, the debates between Stuart Hall and Bob Jessop on the extent of Thatcherite hegemony, and we also chatted about the way in which the new Labour era can be seen as a consolidation of Thatcherite neoliberalism. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has loads of brilliant left-wing titles that might be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family by Sophie Lewis, a landmark text of visionary feminist thinking. The book's been described by Donna Haraway as the seriously radical cry for full gestational justice that I long for. And in fact, you can check out an interview I did with Sophie about the book, Just look for episode 35 in whichever podcast app you're using. And you can find out more about Full Surrogacy now at versobooks.com. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle as always is at Paul Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. The show really needs listener support if it's to be viable in the long run. And you can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Alexander Gallas is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Kassel in Germany and one of the editors of the Global Labour Journal. He has a PhD and an MA in sociology and is the author of The Thatcherite Offensive, a neo-Pulantzasian analysis published in the UK by Haymarket Books. You begin the book by contrasting the positions of of two groups of Marxist intellectuals in the 1980s um, who were seeking to account for the success of the the Thatcher project or or just more broadly describe what the Thatcher project was. Um, So there's the the first group most closely associated with uh, Stuart Hall and the cultural studies tradition, and then the second group around Bob Jessup and the state theory school. So as I understand it, the the nature of the dispute between the two groups was over the degree to which Thatcherism could be seen as a successful uh, hegemonic project. Could you explain what is meant by a hegemonic project and and what you see as the key differences uh, between the positions taken by the groups around Hall and around Jessup? I think the group around Hall came first. And the point they were making was that they said, well, this is not just a sort of authoritarian crackdown. In actual fact, Thatcherism 
manages to uh, organize quite a lot of consent and quite quite a lot of people are in support of it and the issue they were thinking about was how how does that work and mm. why is it that people suddenly agree to a project that radically changes the parameters of British politics towards the right and possibly even working class people start um, supporting such an agenda. Um, And so this is in response to uh, a degree of resistance to seeing Thatcherism as a project which had significant popular support. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 So basically... The assumption that, you know, this is just a reflection of a situation of crisis, this will blow over, this will go away. And Hall and the other authors in in his camp actually stressed, no, there is something at stake. There is possibly a fundamental shift going on and the parameters of, of politics will be changed quite profoundly. And the way the Thatcherites or the circle around Thatcher do it is that they say, and that is possibly a story that resonates with politics today, they um, go against the establishment just as they go against the people on the left who are trying to bring down the country. So in a certain way, the claim was, according to Hall and his circle, that there was a mode of speaking on behalf of the people against established forces that uh, um, brought the country into a crisis. Um, and and these these forces were on the left, on the right, and they, they also went across classes. I mean, that's mm. part of this sort of populist appeal of Thatcherism that, you know, the claim was, well, you know, one nation Tories were too willing to compromise. They didn't take a hard line where they should have taken a hard line. Um, very often behind them were vested interests that weren't really interested in productive investment, but in uh, simply enjoying their privileges. Mm. So in a certain way, um, the point Hall and his circle made was that there was something like a new um, group emerging that centered on this idea that they, the hardworking, aspiring people in Britain deserved something better than um, this system that had, had gone into crisis. And they were able to build a lot of consent around this. And I I think, um, or my point then was to say, well, this is a valid analysis and an important analysis, but possibly not a complete analysis of what went on. Hmm. So the Jessup side very much stressed, well, yes, this may be the case, but there are all sorts of contradictions, especially at the economic level and the political level, um, that are important to take into account when you look at Thatcherism. Possibly they're not able to resolve the fundamental economic problems that became visible in the 1970s crisis, and also possibly the consent that they managed to organize is not from all quarters of British society, but from certain groups. And so my thinking uh, when I reread this debate was that actually these positions are not mutually exclusive. They were were discussed as mutually exclusive positions back then. In a certain way, there was a debate between the two sides and it was going back and forth. 
you know, one side said, you know, you have to take this into into account, and the other side said, well, um, but that was not our point, and so forth. And I thought you can bring this together, hmm. and that brings me back to your initial question about the hegemonic project. Well, for the people around Hall, hegemony refers to the ability of groups um, representing the ruling classes. Uh, to produce consent and to present their ideas as ideas that are commonly shared. The people around Jessup then took up this line of thinking but said, well, it's a correct observation that this sort of mode of governing through hegemony, through being able to present very particular and specific ideas aligned to specific interests as ideas that rep- represent the common good, um, that we link those to um, broader political projects and see how they actually work in terms of mobilizing this consent and where do, where they um, mobilize this consent and how they're aligned to certain um, strategies in economic policy in particular. Um, and I, I then made the point um, that maybe the question isn't so much whether, which was a big question back then, is um, whether Thatcherism was hegemonic or not, hmm. whether it had huge um, public support or it didn't have huge public support, but which type of support it took. Um, and so I came building on some of the concepts Bob Jessup introduced to the debate uh, came up with the, this idea that he could distinguish between uh, one uh, nation and two nations hegemonic projects. Uh, the first one being more expansive and including more parts of the population and the second one building more on division and just targeting certain parts and attacking other parts. And then the point was to say that Thatcherism was a project of the latter type or was aligned to a project of the latter type. And um, what would an historical example be of a one nation hegemonic project? Um, Essentially, I guess you could say that all the attempts made in post-war years to build a post-war settlement that is built on the idea that you have full employment in a welfare state, but also a certain degree of acquiescence from the trade unions and organized labor to the capitalist status quo, that these were projects that possibly at least strategically aimed for something like that. Hmm. Whether it came into into existence is a different question, because historically speaking, from what I found, um, this post-war arrangement very, very quickly ran into problems and recurring economic crises um, and the various post-war governments of Britain, be they Labour or Conservative, struggled with establishing a kind of stable form of government that at the same time ensured a steady growth and living standards for the working class. Hmm. So from the late 50s onwards, this became more and more of a problem and culminated in the 70s crisis. So in that sense, you could argue possibly a lot of the ideas at the time were framed in a one nation way, but possibly never had a project that really took off Hmm. and 
enjoyed very, very broad uh, success and very broad support. And uh, would you perhaps see uh, some of the governments in in mainland Europe? I mean, you know, particularly perhaps uh, West Germany during the period of the 50s, 60s, and and the 70s as as a successful hegemonic project, as compared to a failed attempt at, at, at a one nation hegemonic project in the UK. I mean, it was surely less ridden by crises. What you see, what you saw in some of the Western European countries. I'm a bit hesitant to apply the exact same term because it very much is a term that obviously comes from British politics. This notion, uh, notion of a one nation tourism, which goes back to the 19th century. Um, but I mean, you could say that West Germany, say in the 50s and 60s, was a country where you had fairly broad support and rising living standards. Nevertheless, it's also important to point out that this consent is never complete. Mm. Um, and, and I guess that's that's a very important part of the, the West German story, that there was a, a migrant population that was part of this story and part of the the effort to rebuild West Germany after the war that was not part of this consensus. Mm. This is the, the guest worker program. Yeah, and did not benefit materially to the same degree that other members of the German working class benefited from it. So these mm. things need to be taken into account. But in terms of, I guess, the overall thrust of politics, yes, it was very much a a mode of politics where you had a broad, um, broad degree of consent for the prevail, to the prevailing economic system to the degree that you had in the late 60s already... Um, something that has become more prevalent in recent years in German po- politics, which is a so-called grand coalition between the uh, Christian Democratic and the Social Democratic Party governing together, hmm. um, which is obviously a very, very much a, a consensus-based political model, but at the same time from the 60s and 70s, late 60s, early 70s onwards, also first signs of economic strains. I mean, that is also part of the story in in West Germany. In terms of thinking about Thatcherism as a two-nation hegemonic project, what does that exactly look like? Um, You know, who are the the two nations? Well, I mean, it's an age-old distinction in British politics. Um, uh, It goes, goes back centuries. Um, that there's this idea that they're deserving and the undeserving poor. So uh, a group of people who are poor because they're work shy in this discourse, they are um, uh, not willing to work, um, who are immoral and so forth, and then a group who due to circumstances they don't control land uh, in a, in a bad set- situation and deserve some help so this is a really old pattern if you will but i would say and i would argue that there is a specific thatcherite twist on the on this motive or way in which it, this was taken up from the 70s onwards by saying well there is there are actually two na- nations here one uh, nation of people who are idle, who are lazy, who don't want to work hard, who either enjoy privileges or make trouble, um, who complain 
Um, and then another group who are sort of hardworking, who want to better themselves, who um, want to improve their situation. And you can find these motives in a lot of the speeches, papers, pronouncements of the circle around Thatcher and from, from Thatcher herself in the 70s and then also in the 80s. And uh, building on that, I would say the general way in which Thatcher and her circle communicated with the population was to say, um, well, obviously we we side with those who are sort of hardworking, who are aspiring, who want to better themselves, and we go against those who are idle and privileged. Um, and and privilege here includes uh, unionized workers, right? Yeah, I mean, and that that can be that can be a unionized worker who uh, likes to go on strike and doesn't really work and doesn't doesn't really do much. Uh, apart from complaining, but that can also be someone who uh, works in the city as part of aristocratic networks, enjoys long lunches, doesn't work much and pockets money through trading shares in the stock exchange, which is like a gentleman's club that uh, no one can enter. So both these groups were attacked in Thatcherite discourses and they were saying, you know, we go against them. These are the vested interests. Um, um, And any kind of people who were somehow not conforming to what the Thatcherites saw as this large group of people who are hardworking and who want to improve themselves through hard work and so forth. And uh, when it came to the actual political agenda that came out of that this this meant crucially attracting uh, attacking the trade unions my book is very much about saying that a crucial part of the factorite project if not the crucial part was undermining organized labor in britain but part of it was also and that's also a chapter in my book about, for example, liberalizing the stock exchange mm. and making sure financial corporations had access to it and international financial corporations had access to it. And these kind of old networks that controlled it were sidelined in the process. And so in terms of that attack on gentlemanly capitalism, so to speak, and, and the so-called wets in, in the political sphere around Thatcher that were identified with uh, One Nation Toryism, is that simply done because it's a useful strategy in making that populist turn appealing to the working class by saying, look, we're going after these vested interests at the top. We're not just going after, you know, um, feckless workers, quote, unquote. Or is that attack on that sector of the elite actually uh, a goal in and of itself? My hunch is it's the letter. Hmm. It seemed to be a strong sense uh, in, in Thatcherite circles. And I think here of Keith, Keith Joseph, who was one of the leading intellectuals behind the Thatcherite project, who wrote about how the transition to capitalism in Britain had been incomplete and how um, this had created certain vested interests that were, were privileged simply because of feudal privileges. Now, obviously, this didn't go as far as saying, you know, we want to go against, say, the royal family or abolish 
these aspects of uh, British society and, and, and the British political system, but mm. there seemed to be a strong sense that they wanted a new type or more complete type of capitalism, which they also called a popular capitalism, meaning what we would possibly today call entrepreneurial attitudes that are deeply rooted in the population, where everyone thinks of themselves as a, uh, a potential entrepreneur or a share owner, um, who, where everyone works hard to improve themselves and so forth. And in a certain way, if you then look at the composition, for example, of Tory MPs who entered Parliament in the 1980s, these were very often people who came from not-so-privileged backgrounds and were people who had uh, experienced social mobility and saw that as a product of their hard work and had chosen very individualist sort of paths of improving themselves. So in a certain way, this, this was part of this project and it was also part of the popular appeal of this project. Just going back for a moment to, to Stuart Hall and to, to Bob Jessup, in your book you make this distinction between class politics and economic order politics. Could you explain what the distinction you're trying to make is exactly by, uh, by using those terms? Yeah, and this distinction at first may seem a bit counterintuitive. What do I mean by this? Well, when I started doing research on this topic, I was thinking I'm, I'm interested in the issue of class and how class is negotiated at the political level and addressed at the political level. And what you quickly realized once you asked that question is a whole range of political interventions have class effects. Um, you could argue almost any political intervention has class effects of sorts, which means that um, to simply call about uh, talk about class politics is a bit problematic because you automatically see that there are different ways in which certain political interventions affect class. And my idea then was to say, well, there are political interventions that address class relations directly, and then there are others that have pretty massive effects, but in a, in a more indirect manner. Um, and so I came up with this distinction by saying, well, class politics I reserve for those interventions that affect class in a more direct manner, uh, whereas economic order politics is maybe something that has to do with economic policy and the broad sort of economic strategy that is put in place very much affects class, but more in an indirect manner. So this may sound pretty abstract to make it clearer. If you bring in changes to trade union law that have direct effects on how people in workplaces can organize and how people can act collectively who are working class people, then that would be class politics. If we talk about monetary policy, say, this, is, this can be awfully important in terms of its class effects. But obviously, uh, political interventions are aimed directly at addressing monetary issues, exchange rates, interest rates, and so forth. So that would be economic order politics. 
In relation to this, so in the book you describe the way in which we have quite an understandable tendency to to map changes in, in society sharply onto changes of government. But you argue that while the Labour government that, uh, that preceded Thatcher's election didn't engage in the kind of aggressive class politics that you describe elsewhere in the book, they did set in train some of the policies that constituted the economic order that the Thatcher government oversaw. So could you say something about the, the continuities and discontinuities between the Labour government of, uh, of James Callaghan and of, of uh, the first Thatcher government? I mean, what is important to take into account here is that there was the, the 1970s was a situation characterized by deep economic crisis, which then also started to translate into a political crisis and possibly also an ideological crisis. Um, and what happened in the mid-70s was that the Callaghan government made an agreement with the IMF simply because the pound was under massive pressure and there was, there was the assumption that Britain needed help in a situation of high and rising unemployment and high inflation in terms of getting the British economy back on track. And in that situation, the Labour government chose to impose certain monetarist measures, in, in, in particularly uh, to cut back on state spending and allow unemployment to increase. And in th this sense, um, it foreshadowed some of the measures that then were put in place later in the Thatcher government. So in this sense, um, you could argue that there were already strong changes in the mid-1970s before Thatcher was even elected in terms of assumptions about how the economy should be managed and how governments should try to induce growth. So more of of an attempt to to do so by restricting state spending, by curbing inflation, um, by stabilizing um, the currency, which were all motives that would then be important for Thatcherite uh, economic order politics. What was different, though, and uh, there are some quotes uh, in the book around this that I found quite interesting. Dennis Healy, who was the uh, chancellor at the time, the Labour chancellor, said he was an unbelieving monetarist in the sense that he felt that financial markets, markets needed this intervention to calm things down, but he did not really believe that this would be conducive to sort of stabilize growth over the medium term. So it was more sort of a short-termist intervention, whereas the Thatcher government very, very clearly uh, was of the opinion that interventions of this type were absolutely necessary and the right way to turn um, the British economy around. And so for the Callaghan government, it's more uh, a sort of tactical move they make rather yes. than betraying any real sympathy for, for neoliberalism more generally. I mean, I wonder if, if that perhaps points to the way in which, um, and this maybe brings us on to the new Labour government, 
that it can be very easy to to think of labor in terms of betraying the interests of the working class and perhaps being you know secretly on the side of capital and you know you see this kind of rhetoric around uh, red tories at the moment about uh, opponents of corbyn within the labor party and perhaps what that sort of serves to obscure is the invidious position a labor government is is almost always in in that it, it, it that there's this kind of pressure to um, ensure a, a stable regime of, of accumulation yeah, I think I, I, I think that's it's an important question that you raise here, and it's something I was thinking about today also when I was thinking about how how this story resonates with the present day, and I guess a big part of the reason why the circle around Blair embarked on this new Labour project was really the the depth of the defeat they experienced, and at the same time. The difficulty they saw in reversing a lot of the um, changes that have come come about under the Thatcher government. So, I would in the end say, well, they were very um, uh, timid in terms of uh, what they tried to do, especially after you know uh, being re-elected and uh, being re-elected again. Um, but their calculation was surely that they had to ensure economic stability um, along the lines laid out um, by the Thatcher and then the major governments, and through that then create some space for certain interventions that would improve certain things for less privileged groups in British society. As I said, I'm still doubtful whether this this um, especially over the the medium term was a viable strategy but I wouldn't think of it uh, in terms of the them consciously betraying the working class or something like that in fact if you look at uh, the discussion discussions in the Labour Party, throughout the Thatcherite era there were always roughly two positions one was saying we need need to fight this tooth and nail because it's really dangerous and it does real damage um, uh, to the people we represent uh, and another position that say, said we need to accommodate accommodate to the new realities you know people um, are in favor of um, some or a lot of the changes that the Thatcher governments have instituted uh, in certain ways, um, um, certain groups have also benefited materially from those changes, um, and um, um, our policies should more be geared towards saying we don't uh, change everything or create a rupture with what the Thatcherites did, but modify it. In a certain way, I think this was a very problematic strategy, strategy because in a lot of the cases, at least when it came to labor relations, it meant that the answer was acquiescence, not militantly fighting back against the attacks uh, on organized labor. And I can't think of very many examples where that paid off um, in the sense that the industries were run down anyway, people lost their jobs anyway. So in that sense, I'm, I'm doubtful 
about this strategy. At the same time, obviously, in certain ways, and at certain points, especially um, after Thatcher had been re-elected twice in 1987, there was a feeling, you know, there has been a profound shift and it's difficult to reverse that shift. And what do we do now? Which is sort of an understandable uh, way of thinking if you think of a situation like that. I was uh, I was recently bickering with uh, John McTernan uh, on Twitter, uh, that former advisor to Tony Blair, about the question of whether New Labour should be seen as as neoliberal or not. And the argument he was making was that, say what you like about New Labour, but it did increase uh, spending on public services. It did make efforts to channel resources to poorer communities, at least after the the second budget. Uh, Initially, they kept to the spending commitments of the previous uh, major government. Um, What would you say to that argument? And what do you think it is in particular, that characterises New Labour as a as a neoliberal project and as a consolidation of Thatcherism. Well, I think it was a neoliberal project because it did not in any way touch, and I mean that brings me back to this possibly somewhat opaque distinction between economic order politics and class politics. In terms of the general economic strategy. I would say that there was a great degree of continuity. And you already mentioned the first budget, which was completely along the lines of what the Tories had laid out. And also this general reliance on an accumulation strategy that was driven by finance. Uh, I don't see how uh, New Labour at any point seriously was trying to reverse or change that. So in that sense, there's a really strong degree of of continuity, and that's why I introduced um, this term of economic uh, order policy also to map this continuity. At the same time, an argument that I'm making is that in the area of class politics, uh, there is a change. And there is especially a change when it comes to uh, welfare policies that are more expensive when it comes to the public sector and the expansion of the public sector. That's something that changes. But the important point here is this happens against the backdrop of leaving almost everything else intact. So the economic strategy is left intact. And what's also left intact is all the changes to trade union laws that very, very much curbed the ability for organized labor to act remain in place. So in that sense, there is a strong degree of continuity. And from the late 80s onwards, there's more and more discontent with, let's say, the social impact of, of, of Thatcherism in the sense of its effect on communities, um, its effect on social inequality, um, its effect on public services and so forth. That's the a- area that New Labour takes up and where it takes up the discontent, but it leaves intact just about anything else. Now, you can say, obviously, that that still brought material changes to people's lives. You know, if, if your public sector is expanded, if people can access better p- public services, obviously, that makes a, makes a massive change. But the problem is also that through leaving intact the accumulation strategy and leaving intact this heavy reliance on finance and also leaving intact the liberalization of consumer credit markets, which 
inflated uh, demand by allowing people to go into debt, uh, leaving intact the privatization of, of, of social housing, all of the, the, the um, and people, you know, um, getting access to mortgages and, and all of that, all of that fed it directly into the big crisis from 2007 onward. So it was not very sustainable what, what New Labour did. In fact, they contributed directly to creating this huge crisis. And in that sense, um, yes, you know, some people benefited benefited from public the public sector being expended for uh, or during the, the 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 new labor era, but um, but that proved to be problematic once this big crisis hit. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.